Welcome to The Portable Pastor, a podcast of relevant biblical teaching, linking ancient truth with today's challenges. Each week, Pastor Mike will share God's Word to help you and remind you that God is pro-you. So download the outline from fbcclover.life and get ready to hear today's teaching. Here's Pastor Mike. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning back in again to the Portable Pasture Podcast. Mike Stafford here coming to you from a Clover Blue and Gray office in Clover, South Carolina. Looking out the window, kind of dreary today, but the Word of God is going to make up for that. Got my cup of coffee and I'm ready to go. Let's jump right into this thing. I have learned so much this week. We're taking a break this week from our um, looking at the Sermon of the Mount, and we're going to look at the the Passion Week, the events that happened during the Passion Week. And today, I just want to look at the arrival of Christ, the arrival of Christ on the scene, the triumphal entry. And I want to share with you six things that I've learned this week. Now, what I did was I, I went through all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking for for anything that had to do with the triumphant, uh, triumphal entry, and then I've compiled all of those things into into six things that I've learned, and I'm going to share those with you. Did you know that the triumphal entry uh, is one of only ten events that are recorded in the four gospels? There's only ten things that are included in all four gospels. Three of them were before. Before this last week of Christ, there was the baptism of John, the feeding of the 5,000, Peter's profession that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. All of those three things were included in all four Gospels. But the next seven all take place during the last week of Jesus' life. All four Gospels record the triumphal entry, the Last Supper, what happened at Gethsemane, the trials, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So I after reading that, it's safe to assume that the writers of the gospel saw that this last week of Jesus' life was of utmost importance. And we might ask, well, what's so big about the Passion Week? I mean, those last few days, of course, are you know life-altering, but what's so big about the Passion Week? Well, just look at those seven things. Just look at just those seven things. The triumphal entry was a major fulfillment of prophecy. The, the upper room... That upper room supper became an ordinance of the church that churches still practice today. Gethsemane showed the determination, the the grit, the guts of Christ, what he was going to do to save the elect. The trials proved that he was innocent before they killed him, and the crucifixion is the fulfillment of the whole reason that he became a man in the first place. His burial showed that he died. He really died for sin. And his resurrection was proof that he has the power over life and death. Passion Week is a very big deal. Un- understand, without the, without the events that happened during that week, th- there's no reason we should listen to God. There's no reason for the church to meet. There's no worshipful respect that's, that's owed to Christ. There, there's no reason for upholding even justice today. There's no eternal salvation. There's no hope for eternity at all. In fact, I'm convinced that that if it if this hard holy week had not happened, humanity would have already destroyed itself and everyone that would have ever had walked the earth would be in hell. I am convinced of that. Passion week is that big of a deal. That's why it's listed in all four gospels in such detail. 
Well, let's read the the one in Matthew in its entirety, and then I'm going to point to some of the other accounts just briefly. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you're not driving, if you are, just listen along as I read Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Now, when they heard or when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus sent his two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And, and he will send them away at once. Now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and we're at verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Jesus was making his grand entrance into Jerusalem, right? I mean, this is going to be a big deal. And he shows up on a donkey. He's riding a donkey. <laughs> Jesus rode a donkey, I think, for a, a few reasons. One was to fulfill Zechariah 9 9. That, that's, that's, I mean, that's a given. You know, Zechariah 9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus showed up on a donkey because prophecy said he was going to show up on a donkey. Another reason he showed up on a donkey is because the leader on a horse showed up for a war, but the leader on a donkey showed up for peace. He wanted to be a man of peace. And the third reason, he just wanted to connect with everyday people. Most people had a donkey on those days. If you had a horse, it was a, it was a luxury. You could use donkeys for a lot of things, horses only for a few. So he showed up just to connect with everyday man. But that this leads me to, to the second thing that I learned this week. In, in Matthew, Jesus had his disciples retrieve two donkeys. Don't miss it. Two donkeys, go get them and, and return back to me. Why would Jesus request two donkeys? No one was going to ride on the donkey with him. Was he going to wear one out on the way? I mean, why the two donkeys? In fact, the other records only record Jesus sending them after one donkey. So people might say, that sounds like a, an inerrancy there. Sounds like there's a problem. So I looked it up. I, I read a site called DefendingInerrancy.com, and this is what they say about this. Mark and Luke focus on the colt, which Jesus was going to ride. Matthew mentions the presence of the colt's mother, and her presence may have been necessary because the colt was too young. Mark 11 states that no one had ridden on the colt and that the colt would be taking a, a passenger through a noisy crowd. Perhaps the mother was brought along in order to be a calming influence upon her young. So I, I can understand that. And, but remember, this was a, this was a well, a well thought out, well, well planned out moment by God. There was nothing left to chance. 
And so if that's true, then, then Jesus didn't need that cult to get spooked, right? He didn't need that cult to start bucking and running around and possibly even throwing him out in the street. People would have laughed at him, except for those, of course, from southern Jerusalem. You know, they'd have, woo! You know, they thought the rodeo was in town. I'm sure if that was the case, he would have surpassed that eight seconds. But there's no belt buckles in Jerusalem, so it, so what's the point? But anyway, so maybe it was to... to calm that cult down, but maybe it was a distinction between the cult and the grown donkey. He, he was going to fulfill scripture and he wanted those who knew this prophecy to absolutely get it. But either way, the point is, is that Jesus knew the plan. He knew what was going to happen and he took every precaution to make sure it would happen just that way. Now, I also learned from this Matthew uh, account that the disciples proclaimed Jesus to be Messiah, but the Jews in Jerusalem introduced him as a prophet. I mean, look at verse 8. They were spreading their cloaks and branches out on the street. That's a mark of of divinity, not divinity, of, of royalty coming into your city. That's what they did when kings come in. The MacArthur Commentary says that doing so was an ancient act of homage reserved for high royalty, suggesting that they recognized his claim to be king of the Jews. Those who were putting their robes down and those who were putting their branches down were doing so, pronouncing that Jesus was the king. Now look at verse 9. Others referred to him as the son of David. The son of David. That's a messianic title. They sang about Jesus being the Christ coming in the line of David. Hosanna literally means save now, save now. The people who were singing while they were traveling with Jesus, they were proclaiming that this man was Messiah, the one who could save them. But then look at verse 11. They introduced him in town as a prophet. This is the prophet Jesus. So he was presented as a king. He was presented as a Messiah. He was presented as a prophet. So why the difference in thought? Wouldn't Jesus wanted to be just known as Messiah? Well, of course he would, but people didn't know him. The Jews in Jerusalem had heard of him, but they didn't know him. They didn't believe in him. And they, no doubt, they heard the stories. I mean, they heard the, the teaching, the, the, the standing up to the religious leaders. They've heard about the healings and the feedings and the walking on water and the raising of Lazarus. They heard about him, but they didn't know him. And they definitely didn't believe he was the son of God come to save the Jews from their sin. Now, don't miss this subtle point. Don't miss it. Not everyone who respects Jesus is saved. Not everyone who who respects Jesus is saved. This, this is the truth. This is the truth because Jesus said so. Listen to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I've read it to you a, a, a thousand times. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Everyone everyone has an idea about who Jesus is, but only a few are right. Make sure that you see him and you introduce him as Savior, Savior for sin. We've got to move on. Now let's go read the Mark's account of this joyful entrance. 
Turn to to uh, Mark chapter eleven. This this account is the same story, but I want you to notice something in verse one, just right off the bat. Let's just read verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent his two disciples, and it goes on to say, you know, to get the donkey and return to him. In this account, I want you to get a geographical picture in your mind, okay? So if you look at a a line, on the right side of that line is Bethany. That's the city that's the, the furthest to the east, and then if you go to the west, you run into Bethpage, and then you go into Jerusalem, that's a little bit further west. And just below Bethpage was the Mount of Olives. Now remember about Bethany. Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Jesus loved being there. He loved spending time with them. He loved being in that city. He loved, those were some of his very best friends outside of the uh, the, the disciples. Bethpage uh, between Bethany and Jerusalem is probably where the donkeys were located. Remember he said, go to the city ahead of you and get these donkeys. Now Jesus was on the Mount of Olives uh, before he went down into, into Jerusalem. They brought the donkeys back to the Mount of Olives. And it was on the Mount of Olives that he grieved over Jerusalem. We'll, we'll get to that in, in just a minute. Jerusalem is where he's going to be put to death. Okay, so if you look at this line... You got his best friends, one of his favorite places to be. Then you have the Mount of Olives. And then a little bit further is the place where he was going to die. Now, do you know what that means? And this is another thing I learned this week. The Mount of Olives is located between Jesus' friends and Jesus' enemies. This was a a pivotal place for Jesus. Jesus. He knew that if he moved west, that would take him away from his friends in the east. And being there, he, he would be in greater harm. He knew that he would never again return to Bethany to see and spend time with his friends in that same leisurely way. He would never do that again. Listen, sometimes God calls people to leave their friends and their, their, their city that they love to fulfill their purpose. Yeah, maybe he's... He, maybe he's calling you, maybe even calling you to leave your friends and your family and, and to give your life into full-time ministry or full-time missions. You may have to leave your friends and your family to do it. Would you do it? Remember, Jesus did. I, I know one thing, going down that Mount of Olives that day was like saying, it's about to get real. It's like Kevin staying, you know, saying in Home Alone, this is it. Don't get scared now. This was an important moment in the life of Jesus. Jesus stood between his friends and his enemies. Don't miss that. Jesus stood between his friends and his enemies, and he faced his enemies and moved towards his enemies. Don't don't miss the symbolism. Listen to Zechariah 14 on that day. That's, this is the day when Jesus returns, his second return to the earth. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall, you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you shall flee as you fled as an earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. We are told that Jesus will once again 
return and put his feet on the earth. And where's he going to put them? The Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives. And what happens next? Well, we'll listen to Revelation 19. He's going to talk about this same day. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he is the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Wouldn't it be something if he came back with that exact same robe that they killed him in? Mm. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And listen to this. He will tread. Means he's going to get off his horse. He's going to walk. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he is a new name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Once again, Jesus is going to show up. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives between his enemies and between his friends. He will face his enemies and they will lose. And his army won't even get sweaty. <laughs> don't, don't miss the symbolism. Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives in this, in this passage. He was between his friends and his enemies. And we're going to see this again. Look, we, we got to press on. Now turn with me to Luke's account of this event. In Luke 19, 28 through 40, we see many of the same characteristics in this story. But for the sake of time, let's just go ahead and skip to verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone among another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This week I also learned that this was not a completely joyous occasion for Jesus. They would think that Jesus would be happy you would think Jesus would be happy. All of us, we thought he'd be happy about the praises being sung to his name at this time as he's coming off this mountain, but he wasn't because he paused and he wept. Jesus hurt for his chosen people. Yeah, they were defiant. They were rebellious. They were an arrogant, idolatrous, and adulterous people, but Jesus loved them more than you could possibly imagine. And Jesus knew the wrath of God was coming. It would be poured out on the Jews. The Jews would be killed. Jerusalem would be lost. And the temple is going to be torn down. More than that, they would not understand that the time of the visitation by the Messiah was upon them. They wouldn't even see that. So they're going to reject the gift. He's going to offer them salvation by grace through uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. They would reject that. And they're going to pay the price. By the way, they still reject it today and they're still going to pay the price. When God returns his attention to dealing with the Jews after the rapture of the church takes place, he is going to pour out his wrath. Jesus knew this, so he wept on that mountainside. What should have been a time of rejoicing for all of us turned out to be a time of weeping because the Messiah knew the future. 
Now turn with me to one more gospel passage recording uh, recording this event. It's in John chapter 12, verse 17. John, it actually starts in verse 12, but verse 12 through 16 are the same story, the things we read in Matthew. But look at verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They were testifying for him. They were bearing witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him, this is the people in Jerusalem, was they had heard he had done this sign. This is what I learned this week. The Jews in Jerusalem went out to meet Jesus because of Lazarus. Not because of Jesus, but because of Lazarus. What he had done to Lazarus, well, wouldn't you? I mean, if a man raised someone from the dead in Hickory, just in Hickory Grove down here, and everyone was talking about it, what if, if WBT and WBTV News reported it and all your favorite social sites on the internet were buzzing about it, if all your friends from Hickory Grove who saw this told you about it, would you not go out to see this man if he was walking north on 321 through downtown Clover? Man, I would. I'd be right there front row. No, in fact, I'd pull a Zacchaeus. I'd climb my not-so-wee little self up in one of those Bradford pears, and I'd have my iPhone and a bag of gluten-free Oreos just snapping pictures, posting it. Look who I saw today. I guarantee you a lot of people would be there. Look, people will consider Jesus when they've heard a testimony. Oh, that's good. If a, if a trusted friend wanted to introduce you to someone who had the power over life and death, would you at least consider meeting him? I think you would. Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus has the power over life and death, and Holy Week proved it. We're going to celebrate that very point next Sunday. He rose from the dead. But today, he's just coming and introducing himself to you. Would you consider meeting him? Would you at least acknowledge that he's someone extremely special and find out all you can about him? If you do, when you dig, you're going to find out he's the real deal. He is God's son sent to save you from sin. If you search for him, he will let you know this truth. And unlike the Jews, when you find that out, you can accept the gift of salvation today. You don't have to reject him. Would you accept him today? I'd be interested in talking to you about that. You can email me at mike at fbcclover.com and we can have an online discussion about those things. Well, I hope this was a was an encouragement to you today. It was a great beginning of Holy Week as we begin to think about what Jesus did for us throughout this week in history and what what meaning it has for us. I, I, if you're here, if you're in Clover or you're close by and you can join us for worship next Sunday, you, it's going to be awesome. We're even having a Maundy Thursday service, just a contemplative uh, communion service on Thursday at 7. We'll invite you to that. But if not, come worship with us next Sunday. You know, we, we meet at 8, 30, 11 in our COAC building, and you can come and worship with us. Worship the risen, <laughs> righteous, uh, conquering Savior. Okay, we're going to celebrate him. He beat life and death and, uh, and came back and had, to, had the scars to prove it. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. Well, until then, have a great week. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would give folks who are listening to this a, a, holy, uh, a holy moment with you, a holy moment with you where they can reflect on what you did and take on the attitude that you took on when he was coming down that Mount of Olives. 
Father, I ask that you would help us to see the world like you see it. You would help us to reflect the goodness of your son like we're supposed to. And we'll give you glory for it. Bless everyone who's listening today with peace and with happiness. In Christ's name, amen. Well, have peace, have happiness. I hope you have a great week. If you need me, email me at mike at fbcclover.com. Until next week, have a great week. And remember, if you're walking with him, he is very much pro you. Thanks for listening to the Portable Pastor Podcast. Pastor Mike serves as pastor at the First Baptist Church in Clover, South Carolina. FBC Clover is a church that focuses on loving God, loving people, and making disciples. For more information about our church and our ministries, or to make an online donation, go to fbcclover.com or email us at fbcclover at gmail.com. Until next time, be blessed. And remember, God is pro-you.